Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Last month or so, uh, Travis and Kyle have been walking through a series on the image of God and, and really helping us to understand what it means not just to bear the image of God, that, that God creates every human being with his image stamped inside of them, but, but to be better imagers, that we are imagers, it's an active thing. That the reason God is so offended by idols and idolatry and making images of God is because God already made images for people to see his reflection through, and that's us. And so, so uh, th- this, today we begin a new series, and we're going to be in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Um, you can turn there ahead of time if you want. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Um, uh, if you get to Matthew in the New Testament, you've gone too far. Just back up a couple books, but... Um, The reality is that God's design and desire for humankind is for us to image him, to reflect him, so that everyone that he's created can have an opportunity to see who God is. He's given us his word, and as we are transformed through his word, we are called to then reflect that to the people around us. And so one of the things we see throughout the Bible, and especially here in Zechariah in the Old Testament, is is that the people of Israel were were taken into captivity, into exile numerous times in the Old Testament. And and this happens to catch up with Israel at one of those times where the people of Israel were, were basically captives of another nation. And so they had to, that had to play, kind of pledge allegiance and get, pay taxes and all of that to a, a, a foreign government that was over them. And, and the reality is, is that the reason they were there in that predicament is because they rebelled against God, disobeyed him. And really the, the, what happened was that they chose not to be imagers of God. Because see, God's desire for Israel was for them to image him, to reflect him, so that God could bless all the other nations through them. Because the other nations would see God reflected through Israel. And so because of their obedience, because they chose their own way, God disciplined them and, and, and tried to bring them to a place where they would, they would see him clearly and then they would pursue him and they would reflect him. And so, so as we get into this uh, book of Zechariah, um, the, the setting for it to understand what's going on in the world around them at the time is that as Zechariah comes on the scene as a prophet after the return of God's people from Babylon. God's people were taken into captivity by Babylon, but then uh, over, uh, over a while, after a time, um, God's people were allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 
But Babylon didn't allow them to do that because in the meantime, between them being taken into captivity and being allowed to go back to Jerusalem, uh, Babylon was defeated by, by Persia. And, and so they were in exile because they rebelled against God and did not reflect his image. And, and so when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, there was, there was, they were anticipating, expecting kind of like a new beginning. And see, previously there were prophecies by the prophet Jeremiah that, that he was communicated from God that Israel's exile would last 70 years and then God would return his presence to his people and, and, and they would rebuild the temple. And, and so knowing that, and, and at this point in Israel's history, they were approaching that 70-year mark. They were close to it. They could see it. But the problem was that their anticipation of God's restoration was waning because they didn't see the signs that they expected to see for freedom that, that, they, that, they, that they kind of expected. It, it's kind of like a, a little kid and it's their birthday's coming up, right? And they're anticipating, expecting, and they've, they've told their parents what they want for their birthday. And they've told their parents what kind of party they want, but they're getting close to the day and they're not seeing evidences, and so they just ramp up their communication. And they start to wonder, is mom and dad really going to do my birthday the way I want it? Is it really going to happen? Am I going to get the things that I want? You know, and that's kind of like where Israel is, because they're getting to this point, they're saying, well, God said this, but we're not really seeing it. And so they're starting to, to question, they're losing sight of God's promises. But isn't that easy for us to be in that predicament, in that place where, where we know God has said this about us? And we hold on to God's promises, but, but it just feels like those promises coming to fruition are, are so far away, or, or we're not seeing evidences of, of what, we, what we believe God should be doing. And so we start to lose sight of his promises. See, the people, and, 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 and so in this, in this context, um, we, we start to think of God more in a sense of, well, if, if I do this, then God has to do this. And, and so that's kind of what was going on in Israel, that the people of Israel were treating God in a transactional way rather than a relational way. See, God never set out to be a businessman providing services with his people. It's, it's never been a business partnership where, where God does this and we're maybe his, like, his clients and, and if we do this, then he does this. That's not, God, God didn't set out to be a businessman providing services. He set out to be a father. See, God desires to have a living, loving relationship with those he created to be imagers. And, and so when we, when we look at God and we think, well, if, if I do these things right, then God has to do these things and then we'll, we'll all be kind of a happy, a happy group of people. And, and, and that's not really what God is all about. He's not a business partner. He's, he's a father and he, he wants a people and he wants relationship and he wants us to, to image him. He wants us to be a reflection of who he is to the world around us. And so as we get into the, the book of Zechariah, um, there, there's kind of two big big, like 10,000 foot themes that are going on in this book. And, and one is that God is sovereign over all the earth. That God isn't just regional. 
He's not just in one location, but God is sovereign over all the earth. And even when things look bad or out of control, God still sees and he still works. Even when, when, when your eyes and your senses are saying, man, it just doesn't seem like God is noticing what's going on, that yeah, God does see that. That, that God is sovereign in the sense that he's over everything. And he sees everything and he knows everything. And, 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 and so, so far the people are back in the land, but things are not progressing as they had anticipated. And so, so the people of God are starting to wonder, you know, is, is, is he really able to bring these things to pass? Can God really deal with Persia? How is God gonna work? And then kind of the second big, big purpose, the big theme is, is that this sovereign God, this big, huge God wants relationship with his imagers that he wants that relationship, that he wants us to become more and more like him and participate with him. The basic driving imperative in, in Zechariah is, is this. God says over and over, return to me, says the Lord. God is calling his people to him. God is saying, come to me, return to me. In spite of your rebellion and your disobedience, repent, turn back from the way you're going and come back to me because I want relationship with you. So how does God encourage the people to return? He gives them hope, exhorting them to obedience and by telling them of a surprising provision that he would make for them and, and that that includes us because the thing that Zechariah begins to focus on as he gets into his, 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 his message is that God will do something that is unthinkable and become man and not only deal with the sin problem, but actually take our sin and pay for it himself. So Zechariah will eventually go that direction and, and, and encourage the people with that. You see, these people have a history of rebellion and disobedience, just like us. But God continues to pursue them and call them back to himself. So essentially, Zechariah gives hope to anyone who anticipates God writing all the wrongs, but finds themselves living in a context where that just feels far away. The prophet helps us see God and ourselves more clearly. He helps us recognize who we are and who he is and how we're different and how we need to grow and how much he loves us. And, and, and so... And so we're going to kind of just step into this kind of uh, this first little section this morning. So if, if you have your Bibles, if they're already open to Zechariah, we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 1, 1 through 6. And I want to, I want to read that right now. Starting in verse 1, it says, In the 18th month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, 
so has he dealt with us. And so there in the first verse, we kind of get introduced to what's going on and, and the time that they lived. And it says that the Lord came to, to Zechariah and to give his word to pass on to the people of Israel. And so it says it was in the second year of King Darius. And so to back up a little bit in the history, so, so Babylon conquered the kind of known, kind of the ancient Near Eastern world at that time. And they took basically everyone, they took everyone into captivity. And, and, and so, so then eventually uh, the, the nation of Persia rises up and defeats Babylon and takes basically all of their, their conquered territory and kingdom. And in Persia then under King Cyrus he made a decree that, that allowed for exiles of many conquered nations to go back to their homeland. And, and that's where we, we catch up with like the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah um, is, is commissioned to go and, 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 and build a wall. And, and uh, Zerubbabel is commissioned to go and start work on the temple. And, and so the Jews had permissions, permission from the king to rebuild their temple. And so then Cyrus passes away, and, and now Darius is in his second year of rule, and, 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 and it's basically 18 years after the, the Jews initially went back to start rebuilding the temple. And, and as far as they've got, they, they've gotten to manage, they've, they've laid a foundation for the temple in the last 18 years since they were allowed to go back, which it kind of sounds like a city project. But, but anyway, so 18 years, they got a foundation, and it just takes some time. And, and, so, and so you now fast forward to, to, to the, to the um, second year of King Darius, and, and, and Darius encourages the Jews to finish the temple. And so Zechariah, along with a contemporary prophet to Israel, Haggai, urge the people to take heart and take up rebuilding the temple again. And so that's kind of where we are. And so in verse two, I want you to notice what, what God says in verse two, because it seems pretty intense. Verse two, it says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. And, and it's actually more intense than it sounds even, because if, if you were to do a very literal rendering of this from the Hebrew, this is how you would you would uh, read verse two. Angry was the Lord with your forefathers with anger. So it seems like God's angry. It seems like there's some anger going on and, and, and even to the point that it's like repetitive and, and awkwardly repetitive. And, and I think here's what's interesting about this is that I've, I've heard people, I've, I've heard this like growing up and, 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 and for those of us in church, and I think especially from those, of us, those people who uh, maybe aren't in church, they didn't grow up in church, but they have some, some grasp of the Bible, that for some reason, people tend to have this mindset that God in the Old Testament is angry and wrathful, but God in the New Testament because of Jesus is about grace and mercy and love. And I think, you know, when we read verse 2 in a literal way, angry was the Lord with your fathers with anger, that kind of sounds like, yeah, that God in the Old Testament was pretty angry. But, but the problem is that we don't quite understand God's anger because we, only have, because we tend to experience our anger. We, we get angry and we experience anger in a very different way that God's anger exists. 
Let me, let me give you an idea of, of, of kind of how we experience and, and maybe something that we, we could find in common with anger. Imagine uh, like a morning, you kind of wake up and it's, it's a nice, cool morning like it was this morning and, and uh, you decide to go for a walk and so you walk out your door and, and down the street and you're on the sidewalk and you happen to live near uh, an elementary school and so you're walking on the sidewalk past the elementary school and and there's that, you know, the chain link fence around the playground, and it happens that it's like morning recess time for the students, and you're walking by enjoying the morning air, and, and, and uh, you look over and you see a group of, of children, and you see a group of children kind of in a circle, and it kind of gets your attention, and you look over, and it looks like maybe they're playing a game or something, and there's a group of children in a circle, and there's a, a kid in the middle and then you kind of watch a little bit and you, and you realize that it's not really a game, but these kids are, are, are bullying this kid in the middle. And so it's all these kids in a circle and they surrounded this kid and they're, 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 they're kind of taking shots at him and they're bullying him. And, and you're walking by seeing this and you notice that, that there's really no school staff or teachers or anybody out there, that this is just happening right there as you're watching. And so what tends to happen when you see something like that? You start to get angry, yeah. You, start, it, you get upset because something is obviously very visibly not right. And so, so there's something that we, we feel some kind of compulsion to do something about it. So, you know, if you're like, you know, pretty spry, maybe you've got a little bit of parkour in your background, you just like do a move over the fence. Um, I see Seth Cheek doing that. Um, yeah, you saw yourself doing that, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. And so, um, so, you know, you do this move over the fence, or maybe you're just one of those super prepared people, which I could also see Seth Cheek being this. You've got wire cutters with you. You just cut the chain link fence, um, and you open it up, and then you get entrance. Or maybe you're not good at either one of those things, and so you just kind of have a loud voice, and you, you realize it, the least you can do is yell and, 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 and tell them to stop or something. But, but it's interesting because... Most of us in this scenario, at least thinking about it, we don't really see just, you know, just walking by ignoring it as, as an option, right? Like that would, that would not be something you'd want to tell. I mean, you don't want to tell that story to people after, you know, the next day. Like, yeah, I was walking by, I saw people getting, a little kid getting beat up. I didn't do anything. I just enjoyed it. Like, not really that cool, huh? So, so yeah, so like you want to do something. So our, our anger compels us to do something. But, but what's interesting is that when I think about that and I put myself in that situation, this is how my processing goes. I get angry and I want to I protect and have compassion on the kid who's being beat up. But the other kids who are the bullies, I want them to pay. How many of you kind of, I mean, that's kind of going on inside maybe. maybe. Maybe some of you are way more mature than me. And, and like that didn't cross your mind. Like you didn't want to punish the kids who were, who were bullying this kid in the middle. But, but that tends to be our, our thinking because my anger tends to want to right wrongs, but it also wants people to pay for the wrongs that they've done. And so, so maybe toward the kid who's being bullied, my anger is restorative. But to the kids who are doing the bullying, my anger is, is kind of retributive. I have a hard time saying that word but I want them to get punished, right? You see, we, we, we tend to think like that, and, and probably most of you, to some degree, can, can identify or relate to that. 
And, and see, anger is corrective in nature. It's a natural emotion that alerts us when something has violated the, the natural order of how we believe things should go. Like when we get angry, we, we can get angry when, when like there's rules that are broken. Like there's a rule and it's broken and we can get angry because that rule was broken. Like, like being at the grocery store. And, and you have to pick up a couple items because you forgot or you ran out of something. You go and get it and you go and you're standing in line and, and you're at the 10 items or less and the person in front of you has 20 items. Like you get angry because that person has broken rules and they're wrong and they need to be punished, right? And no one ever seems to hold them accountable. So like these people need to be like rounded up. I don't know, but, but, but it's just, it's, it's a rule that's been broken and we get angry about that. Or, or sometimes it's not rules that are broken. It's just things that are just not right. It's like when you see the guy wearing socks with his sandals and you're like, no, that's not natural. That's wrong. And you need to bring balance to the universe. And I apologize to any of you today who do that. It's Father's Day, you have a freebie today. Go ahead and be wrong. Like, go for it and don't feel any judgment. But, but like sometimes there's things that we see and we're just like, this is wrong. And, and, and we get angry and we get upset. And, and you see, anger is meant to motivate us to take action, to change and restore the balance of right and wrong. But for this to happen, for us to do this well, we must express our anger for the right reasons in the right way. And, and the problem for us, for me and for you, I would assume that you struggle with, is that because you and I are fallen and wounded people, we practice, we tend to practice a destructive, um, retru retributive anger. And then we assume that that's how God gets angry. When we read things like God was angry with your fathers, we see God as, yeah, God was angry with your fathers. He wanted to punish them. And he, did, he was so tired. Of, he, didn't want, he, he didn't want to see their faces. He wanted them to be away. He was driving them away from him. And he was angry and he wanted to, to punish them. And th this is what he wanted because he was angry. Because that's how I feel angry when I'm angry with somebody. And that's how I experience anger from other people. Like, how many people who are angry with you are like, okay, I just want to be with you? No. <laughs> no one says that, ever. And, and so, yet, yet, yet we, 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 we put our, our fallen and broken experience of anger and we, and we apply that to God. See, we, we as sinful people practice anger as a way of self-protection and preservation. Probably you can relate to this. Oftentimes, when I get angry, it's is a means to take control. Sometimes when we get angry, it's, it's as a defense of our own insecurities. Someone has questioned something about us that we're insecure about, and we, so we get angry because it defends us. Sometimes anger is used as almost a numbing agent, because there's something painful, so we get angry. And the reality is that, that when we're angry, there's a release of hormones in the brain that the, the brain secretes to kind of numb our core hurts. So we get angry, and that, and that helps us feel better. 
Sometimes we get angry as a, as a temporary self-empowerment. There's a reality that when we get angry, our, our adrenaline rises and we feel more powerful. So if we're in a situation where we feel powerless, we get angry, and so that makes us feel stronger. Sometimes we get angry as a distant mechanism relationally so we don't get hurt or disappointed. We get angry and we push people away because we're afraid that we may experience relational hurt in that context. But, but here's the thing. All of those things that we experience and we do, none of these approaches characterize God's anger in the Bible. Because honestly, God is not trying to control anything. He doesn't need to. He is sovereign over everything. God doesn't need to get control. God isn't afraid that you or I might best him. God doesn't get angry because he's afraid that he's insecure and he thinks that you might get the better of him. God is not on a power trip. There is no one more powerful or wise than God. God isn't on a power trip. He doesn't have to get angry to have power or, or feel an adrenaline rush. And, and, and oftentimes, I think, when, when we sin, when we disobey, when we are rebellious toward God, when we know we are living in a way that God is against, we tend to feel like, well, God probably doesn't want to see me. God just wants me to be away from him. I mean, those times that, that, we, that we go to God and, and, and want to ask forgiveness for a particular sin, that we've been in this position with this sin so many times. It's like, at least a weekly occurrence that we go to God and say, forgive me for this again. And we think God probably doesn't even want to hear it. Like God's angry, he's frustrated, he probably responds to my confession of, I'm so sick and tired of this. Just, I don't want, just go away, let, let me cool down. I think that's kind of what Israel saw, was like, was like, we disobeyed and we rebelled against God and it's gonna take 70 years for him to cool down. And then he'll restore us. And so we'll just wait it out. We'll just wait out God's anger. And isn't it interesting that, that so often that's kind of how we do? If, if somebody's angry with you, you kind of just avoid them until they cool down. But I think that's a waste of anger. If, if Sherry is angry with me, I've done something and she's angry with me. And so, you know, again, it's, it's not like you just you don't do this. You don't stay together. You, you kind of avoid each other for a while. And, and here's the thing, is that my default is that I'll just give her space until she cools down. But I think that's a waste of anger because, because what should I be doing while she's cooling down? I should be asking myself, how do I need to change to be a better husband? to be a better leader, to be, to be a better person, to be a better father. When, when in that time, and so instead of Israel saying, let's just wait for God to cool down, they should be asking themselves how in this time of God's anger that he's, he's giving us this opportunity to grow and become better imagers of him. Like there's an opportunity in anger because anger should alert me that there's something wrong. I've, I've sparked something in someone else and maybe it's something that I need to change. And so when someone's angry with me, maybe it's an opportunity for me to say, how do I need to change rather than they need to get over it or I'll just bide my time until they're, they're okay and they'll forget and then everything will be good again. Because the problem in that scenario is I'm the same. 
And, and so I think that gives us an opportunity to focus. And I think that's what God does is God says, no, no, no. I don't want you to just bide your time. I want you to pursue righteousness and holiness and transformation. See, God's anger is in its nature opposite of how we experience human anger. anger. We tend to protect ourselves and our interests where God's anger is for our protection and our ultimate flourishing. God's anger is love in action. We, we talked about this the last month, that what is God's desire for humanity, those creations, those image bearers, us as imagers? It's that God, God wants to protect us and he wants our ultimate flourishing, that we would become like him. And so what happens is that when we choose another path, it's, it's kind of like what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God was there and he wanted to protect them and bring them ultimate flourishing. Instead, they made some choices that put them in danger. They made choices that would not cause them to flourish. And so God got angry with them. And what did they do? They went and hid where God's anger was designed to draw them toward him because God's anger is always 100% of the time restorative in nature where our anger is not. When I think of the scenario of, of the kids on the playground, I want to restore the kid who's being bullied. I don't want to restore the other ones. That's, that's, that's how I feel. But you see, God looks at that scenario and says, I want to restore the kid who's being bullied and I want to do a work of restoration in those who are the bullies. Is God angry with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. But his anger is not a get away from me, it's a come near to me. Because my anger is, is an expression of love and restoration. And, and so, and so like, and, and that, but, that's what, but that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They hid from God. They, they said, we're gonna hide from God and let him cool down. And what God did was say, he said, come out. I want you to come near me, even though I'm angry. Because what I want is to restore you. And what God did in that moment, in his anger, he told Adam and Eve what the plan of restoration was. That's what, an, that's what God does when he's angry. He moves us towards restoration. And, and we've got to wrap our heads around this because we've got to understand this because in order to understand God and how he relates to us, we have to recognize that, that God is not in our image we bear his image, and we need to become more like him. And so our anger, the way I'm angry, desperately needs to change. It's got to be restorative, no matter the circumstance. See, in, in verse 3, look at, what, look at what God communicates with his people right after he says that, that he was very angry. He says, Therefore, Zechariah, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil, de evil deeds. In, in those verses, he says over and over again, return to me. See, in my anger with people, it more communicates get away from me, doesn't it? But God's anger is no, no, come close to me. See, in my anger, in our anger, people are 
unnerved or maybe scared of what we're going to do. In God's anger, we know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to move us towards restoration. And so in my anger, maybe I'm not safe to be around, but in God's anger, he is the safest place to be. And it's interesting, over and over, um, Zechariah refers to the Lord as the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. The Lord, or, that's a really big title for God, the Lord of hosts. In fact, the Lord of hosts, that title carries with it that God is the Lord over all lords and all gods and, and all powers and all authorities and all kingdoms and all nations. The Lord of hosts is the idea that God is not regional, but he is the Lord of hosts and he is over all of the gods in Persia and Babylon and that he is the Lord who has no equal, no competition. It's that idea that he's sovereign and, and that he is the Lord of hosts. And so, so Zechariah keeps saying, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, to communicate with them that this is the one true God above all gods who is the only one worthy of listening to. And his anger toward your fathers results in a call to draw you near to him because he wants to restore you, what you have to do is turn from what you've been doing and repent and walk close to him. And, and it's so interesting how, how we, we tend to go the direction of, I'm so angry, I don't even want to look at you anymore. Where God says, I will not turn my face from you because I want to restore you. And he always, in his anger, gives an opportunity to return. And you see, the, 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 the responsibility falls on us and our part because, because sometimes we realize that people are separated from God forever. That when we pass from this life without repenting, that we will spend eternity apart from God in hell for, for eternity. But God's anger was towards those people and he gave them chance and after chance after chance to return to him. And all along the way, even hell is designed to motivate people towards restoration. But we have to make the decision. We have to choose to turn back to God and pursue him. And, 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 and God will use even, in, in Israel's case, other nations to discipline his people toward restoration. Why did God use Babylon to take Israel into captivity? It's because they had turned from him and were not imaging him. And they were disobedient and they were creating a vulnerability for themselves because of their choices, stepping out of God's protection. And they were not going to flourish because of their decisions. And so God uses, in his anger, Babylon to take them into captivity for the purpose of restoration. It's interesting how even the, the forefathers of these people in, in this day, in Zechariah's day, they who rebelled against God and were disobedient recognized God's restorative anger towards them. Look at what it says in verse six. It says, but my words and statutes, which I commanded my servants the process prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented. Your fathers repented, and this is what they said. As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. 
In other words, they're, what they're saying is, God did the right thing. His purpose in his anger was to bring restoration, and we didn't listen And so God did what was necessary out of his love for us to bring us into this captivity and we've realized we had sin and we went to repent. And you see, the interesting thing about about God's anger and its lifespan, God's anger lifespan is very different than ours. Because when, when, when I'm angry with someone, when you're angry with someone and they apologize too soon, isn't that a little bit frustrating? You're kind of like, no, 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 I want more groveling. Like, you can't do something and then say you're sorry afterwards and be like, I really want you to forgive me. You're kind of like, no, 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 I would like to hold on to this for a little bit longer. I realize you're sorry and you want to make things right, but I would like to be angry. That's not how God works. God is angry with us, but once we repent and turn, everything changes. Because you see, God's anger isn't about himself. It's about our restoration. That's why in the garden, immediately when when Adam and Eve turned and recognized their sin, God said, this is how I'm going to fix this. That's why when their forefathers in, in this book said they turned and repented toward God and God sent Jeremiah to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do in 70 years. I will work my way in the world through nations and governments and I will bring you, you back to freedom and I will rebuild your temple and you will be my sons and daughters and I will be with you the whole time. But there's also consequences to your decisions. But he wasn't angry with them anymore. And so Zechariah is giving this group of people, those who are there in Israel that day, he's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to return to God? Because see, what they were doing was they were waiting God out for his anger to pass. They weren't necessarily becoming the kind of people who are better imagers of God. They were in that moment where, like, well, God's mad at me, so I'll just wait for him to cool off, but I won't change. And so Zechariah says to the people, he says, God was angry with your fathers, and you're waiting in this this time period, but what are you doing about becoming better imagers? Are you becoming the kind of people who can participate with God in his kingdom, or are you just waiting it out, saying, you know what, I'm I'm not going to work on me? I'm just going to let God deal with his anger and cool off, and then we'll be back to things as normal. See, the choice we have is, is, is do we grow and become better people, better imagers because of God's restorative anger? So this morning, as, as, as we kind of run into this, I, th- I think the, the, the thing that I want us to grasp is that, again, God does not act like we act. And that the God of the Old Testament, while we hear about his anger more frequently than we hear about it in the New Testament, he is the same God motivated by his deep and unfailing love for us. And his anger is a manifestation of his restorative love. And and so as, as we go out today, as we begin to jump into Zechariah, and as we live our lives, here's a, a couple set of questions that I, that I think it would be good for us to wrestle with and talk about in our communities, in our gospel communities this week. And the first set is, is kind of about my relationship with God, me and God. 
So the first question is this. When I sin or rebel against God, do I envision his anger as pushing me away or pulling me near? When you sin, when you disobey God, do you run away from him? Or do you run towards him? Because I think our natural inclination because of our experience of human anger is we hide ourselves from God when we're in sin. But you know what God's anger is? God's anger is, is designed to draw us to him. The safest place for us to be when God is angry is in his immediate presence. Another question kind of with you and God is this, do, do I trust that God is all about my protection and ultimate flourishing? Because see, here's where we go, we go aside is when we decide that we are better decision makers about our own safety and our own flourishing. And we go a different direction than God calls us to go. Well, no, I, I think I know myself better and this is what I want. This is how I want to feel. These are the decisions I want to make. This is what I believe about myself. And it may be contrary to what God thinks, but I think that's going to cause me to flourish. The reality is it's not going to. Do I trust that God is about my protection and my flourishing? Do I trust him? And the other set, which is between me and others. When we uh, were talking about that illustration of the, of the schoolyard and seeing that, it was interesting. We were in a worship planning meeting and, and there's a group of us and we were talking about this illustration and, and it was interesting because we, for some reason we asked the question of everybody at the meeting, um, who, do you, who do you identify with in this? Because one of the things was the idea of identifying with the passerby. But what was interesting is some of the people in that meeting identified with, identified with the passerby. But what was really interesting was there was a couple people in our meeting that they said that they identified with the kid being bullied because that's been their experience in life. But it was also super interesting that a couple of the people also said that they actually identified with the bullies and they see themselves as all, God is always angry with them because they are always making the wrong choices. What do, what do I see myself as, the bullied, the bully, or the observer? How do I see myself in that scenario? And, and how do I see God's focus on me? Do I see myself as the passerby who, who maybe God wants to work through? But see, as the passerby, I need to be careful because if I'm going to be angry in that situation, in that scenario... I not only need to protect the bullied, but I need to work toward the restoration of the bullies. And maybe they won't ever be restored, but that's not my call. Maybe I see myself as the, as the bully, and I just see that, that I am, I'm always messing up, and God is always angry with me, and God wants to just blot me out to recognize that I need to return to God. Maybe I see myself as the bullied, alone, and I'm going to do all kinds of things to try to protect myself. But maybe if I see myself as that, I've got to recognize that God's anger is for me. Last question that I would challenge you to ask is this. We, we know in no uncertain terms, especially after walking through the last four weeks, that we are called to be better imagers of God do I image God in my anger? Am I 
pursuing restoration or retribution? How does my anger work? And this is one of those things, for me, that's the hardest question because I even think back to yesterday where I got angry in a scenario and it was completely 100% about me. It was about me defending me and it was about me wanting what I saw as a wrong in my house, in my family, to be made right and my anger was all about me and I had to come back about 10 minutes later and apologize and repent of how I was angry because it wasn't restoration. It was retribution. And so how does your anger, what does your anger reflect? Does it reflect God's restorative anger? Or does it reflect what we experience in this world? My, my prayer for us as we walk through this series is to, is to see God as the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And to see God as one who is for us and loves us so much that he will do whatever he has to do short of making the decision for us to bring us to restoration. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward right now and and come to the front. If you would like prayer this morning, after I pray, I would encourage you to come and receive prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And God, I thank you that you are not like us, that you are not made in our image, but we are made in yours and you are transforming us to reflect you better and better. God, I pray that for those this morning who, who have the wrong perspective of being afraid of you, that God, that those people would see your character and your anger as restorative and they would return to you and they would pursue you and they would, they would stay near you in repentance and humility, Father. I pray for those of us this morning who, who are just struggling with, with being in a scenario in life where we're starting to lose our grip on your promises, that God, you would remind us this morning that you are still the Lord of hosts and you are for our protection and our ultimate f- God, fulfillment and flourishing. So Father, I thank you for your love, your love that is unexplainable. And I pray that as we go out today, that we would be better imagers and reflectors of who you are to the people that we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We'll see you next week.